Welcome to another episode of SG Explained. We are back from our one-week pause. And Elliot, how have you been? You got your second vaccination. I'm vexed. I got the sticker now. Okay, I'm not wearing the sticker, but you know, I was very proud of it for like that one, two days that was still sticking on my shirt. It's it's good. I'm I'm still suffering the side effects. So if you guys hear my voice and it does sound a little bit not of the same, you know, tonality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Does have that same crispness that you're used to? Then. I apologize. <laughs> I officially hit my 14 days post-second vax on Wednesday. The trace together have a notification on it. <laughs> I can't wait to start going to restaurants and gyms and stuff like that. I feel like we've been saying this almost every alternate episode because COVID just keeps hitting us in different ways. If you look back at our review at the end of season four, we'll probably see the ups and downs <laughs> of this uh, turbulent COVID time, right? Like it's probably a lot easier to track. Like, oh right, this is when we went back into heightened alert. This is when we having a small lull. Ah, this is the KTV cluster. Like, we'll find out all these little uh, historical notes in and of itself. And now we're creating history in the process. Well, today's episode is a classic SG Explained history episode. We actually nice. haven't done a history episode for a while. I think, you know, while the Secret Societies and Prostitution episode were a bit more big picture, there was some evolutionary uh, perspectives. This is really looking at a chapter back in history. Uh, it is a military history episode, so there's going to be some elements Ooh. of strategy of tactics and stuff like that and we're going to be talking about Operation Tidrate I don't know if you've heard of Operation Tidrate Elliot not at all dude (laughs) these are not names that resonate very strongly with me let's be very fair but when you sent me like the summary of what we're going to tackle today I was like okay I can get behind this I did not even know that this operation was something you know uh, in the works for the British so I'm pretty excited to talk about it with you learn a lot more there are a lot of new names actually which I don't personally recognize in this story let's be very fair listeners Rovi here is the better history buff than I am (laughs) so when it comes to these episodes you know who's doing the planning it's not moi okay (laughs) it's fun it's fun that's how we learn Operation Tide Race unlike some of the other operations that people may be familiar with actually takes place in World War II times we actually have not done many World War II episodes as well so this is a really good way to to kind of start entering it and we're basically starting at the end Operation Tide Race is also closely affiliated with the surrender of the Japanese to the British and we're we're basically going to be unpacking exactly what happened for the Japanese to give up Singapore what was that whole process like and what happened at the end of it there are some interesting nuggets here I can't wait to get into it so we're gonna get into it. <laughs> Operation Tide Race was the code name of the British plan to retake Singapore following the Japanese surrender in 1945. The Liberation Force was led by Lord Louis Mountbatten, Supreme Allied Commander of Southeast Asia Command. Now, El- Elliot, have you watched The Crown? I embarrassingly have not watched The Crown. Like, if I had to choose between Stranger Things and The Crown, you know yeah. I'm watching Stranger Things. <laughs> to be fair, The Crown is the show I watch when I'm having a meal and I like, I want something. Oh, nice. something in front of me it's not my like lazy time entertainment it's my like i need something to like occupy my time the stimulant yeah the stimulant over lunch lord lewis mountbatten is a very famous figure in the british colonial territories he was the guy who basically 
was in charge of British India. He was looking after some of the operations that were happening in Southeast Asia. And he's actually very closely affiliated with the royal family. So just to give a bit of a buyer, right, uh, the full name that he had by the time he died was Admiral of the Fleet, Louis Francis Albert Victor Nicholas Mountbatten. Uh, <laughs> lots of first names there. Lots of first names. He was the first O. Mountbatten of Burma, and he was born Prince Louis of Battenberg, and he lived on 25th June 1900 to 27 August 1979. He was a member of the British royal family, he was a Royal Navy officer and a statesman, a maternal uncle of Prince Philip, and this is an element uh, that we'll see in the crown a lot, basically that relationship between Prince Philip and him. Uh, and he was a second cousin once removed of Queen Elizabeth II. During the Second World War, and this was where he really built his reputation. He was Supreme Allied Commander, Southeast Asia Command. And he was the last Viceroy of India, of British India, and the first Governor General of the Dominion of India. Right. So he wow. was actually there as India kind of got independence as well. He's an overachiever is what I'm hearing. Yeah, yeah. And he, his military stature actually follows him everywhere he goes. So he's a very big figure. He led this Operation Tide Race to basically take back Singapore. Now, what's interesting is that Tide Race was initiated in coordination with another operation called Operation Zipper, which involved the liberation of Malaya. The Japanese at this point had been using Singapore as their headquarters with the 7th Area Army based on the island. And Singapore was a powerful symbol for the British military might in the region. And so, you know, the fact that the Japanese were using it as their headquarters really pissed them off. They wanted to take it back. And so when the British had lost the island fortress of Singapore in 1942, it was a severe blow to British pride and morale. And they were basically uh, planning ahead to, to seize back Singapore. That's really interesting, right? So may maybe what we we'll want to do is just set some background context as to how Operation Tideways came about. So let's start, let's start. At, at the cusp of, of the World War, right? In, in the rest of the world, I think the tide was turning towards the Allied forces. Uh, the Soviets had invaded Manchuria and the US was planning an invasion of Japan. So Southeast Asia Command was also drawing up plans to invade Malaya. Uh, and this is what you mentioned just now, uh, codenamed Operation Zipper. With over 100,000 Allied infantry, the plan was to capture Port Sweetenham, or now known as Port Klang, and Port Dixon, and would involve an airstrike of more than 500 aircrafts of the Royal Air Force. And once the lodgement was secured, the Allies would have initiated Operation Mail Fist. Yeah, you heard it right, Mail Fist, as in like, you know what, you get sent in the post and a punch. Operation Mail Fist, during which ground forces were to advance south through Malaya and liberate Singapore. You know, of course, we're at the southern tip. Uh, it was expected that Operation Mailfist would begin in December 1945 and conclude in March 1946. Uh, Operation Zip, on the other hand, was scheduled for 9th September 1945, but was forestalled following the surrender of Japan on 15th August 1945. Yeah, so imagine, right? Basically, the British were already ready to bring the Royal Air Force, yeah. do an airstrike, basically secure... A lodgement is basically securing some sort of an advance, right? Yeah, you want a foothold, like your initial strike. Exactly, exactly. And so then from Operation Zipper, they would have used a mail fist to basically punch through and secure <laughs> Singapore. Very aptly named, by the way. Very aptly named. Mail fist is like, we're sending you one straight punch, dude. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, and all of that basically didn't need to happen because the Japanese were like, whoop. 
You know, we're done. <laughs> we're done. We're yeah. done. <laughs> and if you remember why, it's basically because back in Japan, the US had already bombed Japan and it had forced it into a position of needing to surrender. So all of this preparation, I guess, thankfully, because imagine if, if we had more bombardments on Singapore, right? All of this didn't need to happen and it went through the Operation Tide Race. As you mentioned, right? So Operation Tide Race was planned soon after the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki on uh, August 6th and 9th. So the emergency planning was put in preparation for the rapid occupation of Singapore at an early date should Japan agree to accept the terms of the Potsdam Declaration of 26th July. And now while Operation Zipper was executed ahead of schedule, uh, it did so on a much smaller scale having quickly transferred a proportion of its original strength into Operation Tyree. So you can see that this is actually something that required a lot of agility. Like this military plan in general required a lot of agility because there was so much going on. Um, I mean, it's a war. Duh. Uh, you know, <laughs> a lot of things were moving at the same time and uh, plans change time and time again. But I think what it kind of shows me here is the dedication to want to occupy Singapore. Like the British really value, in, in a way, it could be a point of pride, but also a point of value uh, for, for for these colonial uh, thinkers back then. They need to get what was once theirs uh, and, and swiftly at that. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about the setup, right, of Operation Tide Race itself. Uh, the convoy that they had consisted of about 90 ships, which included two battleships. Oh, and it's, I love I love thinking about this, like just setting up a fleet to come in for uh, for the charge. They had the HMS Nelson and the French battleship Richelieu. I I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but hey, probably. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I did a bit of French, so maybe I I hope I'm correct. Uh, the heavier cruiser HMS Sussex served as the flagship. Now we had the HMAS Hawkesbury, uh, which was the sole Australian warship during the Japanese surrender, escorting the repatriation transport. Duntroon. I'm not sure what the details are on this, but it seems to be quite a, a multi-pronged sort of approach by having different kinds of vessels um, approach approach the shore for us. Lah. You know, a small piece of context there, right? So during World War II, when the Japanese had taken over, a lot of the British troops were coming from all over. So some of them were from India, but a good amount of them were from Australia and New Zealand, right? So the Anzac kind of troops. And they had basically become prisoners of war when the mm-hmm. Japanese took over. So when a big reason beyond you know securing Singapore was also to free these prisoners of war that were basically there. And oh, repatriation transport was to basically bring the prisoners of war back to Australia, back to New Zealand, so that you know they could they could get the healthcare that they need and recover back home. Right. So we hear that actually there was a smaller British naval force uh, that was given the task of like as you said, liberating Penang under Operation Jurist, a component of the overall Operation Zipper. So you're saying that, you know, it's not just about taking back the land, but also kind of freeing up these prisoners of war? Is, is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, it's all, all part of the same operation, yeah. Very cool. Uh, in total, uh, we found that there were a total of seven escort carriers. The HMS Amir, HMS Attacker, HMS Emperor, HMS Empress, the HMS Hunter, HMS Khedive, 
and the HMS Stalker. Why are all these names so aggressive? <laughs> <laughs> well, for obvious reasons. You know, they're warships. Yeah, <laughs> strike fear. For sure, for sure. The Japanese naval fleet in Singapore consisted of the destroyer Kamikaze and two cruisers uh, named Miyoko and Takao, but both of which had been so badly damaged before that they were being used as like just floating anti-aircraft batteries. Uh, two ex-German U-boats, uh, the I-501 and I-502, were also in Singapore. Both were more than Singapore naval base. The air strength in both Malaya and Sumatra was estimated to be just a little more than like 170 aircrafts. So in this case, like you're, you're watching, I wouldn't say it's like a, it's like a whole big battle or whatnot, but there is really an asymmetrical amount of effort. Like the British are trying to overpower in this sense, right? The colonials are coming full force saying like, we need this back. Uh, and also it's uh, very unfavorable to the Japanese because you can see they don't really have much left. The Japanese at this point had, were battered. They were spread thin, right? They had tried to occupy so much of Asia, but now they were starting to feel uh, the effects of, you know, prolonged war. And so... Actually, even if Operation Zipper, the original operation, had gone along, I think we could be pretty certain that it would have been successful and the Japanese would have needed to to basically concede. Reality is that Operation Tide Race went out. And let's talk about the execution, right? And we got this information not from Singapore's history files, but because Britain essentially implemented the Freedom of Information Act, and this gave regular citizens the ability to request declassified information. They were able to ask for secret files from Mountbatten's Southeast Asia Command. And so these were declassified, and we got really some of the juicy details about how Operation Tide Race was implemented. Let's go into it, right? This is the exciting part. Operation Tide Race commenced when Mountbatten ordered Allied troops to set sail from Trincomalee, which is in Sri Lanka, and Rangoon, which is now known as Yangon in Myanmar, on 31st August 1945 for Singapore. Now, the fleet was not armed with offensive weapons because Mountbatten had good reason to believe that the Japanese in Malaya and Singapore would surrender without a fight. On 20th August, General Itagaki Sishiro, the commander in Singapore, had signaled to Mountbatten that he would abide by his emperor's decision back in Japan to surrender and was ready to receive instructions for the Japanese surrender of Singapore. This is actually quite important because General Itagaki is very well known as a fiery man who actually doesn't like to give up. He was a main conspirator back in Japan behind the Mukden incident. And essentially, the Mukden incident is very interesting. If you go and unpack that history, it has nothing to do with Singapore. But basically, what happened was that uh, General Itagaki and the Japanese created a fake incident in, in Manchuria claimed that the Chinese had basically attacked the Japanese and then used that uh, as a reason to invade uh, Manchuria and take over it. So when previously, when you talked about the Soviets taking back Manchuria, it was basically taking back Manchuria from the Japanese that had been occupying it. And this was the famous Mukden incident. So the General Itagaki is a very, very, you know, crafty man. He had held previous chief of staff positions in the Kwantung Army and the China Expeditionary Army during the early Second Sino-Japanese War. And he was actually the war minister at a certain point, but he had fell from grace after the Japanese defeat in the Soviet-Japanese border conflicts. So then he became a general for several field armies until he finally surrendered Japanese forces in Southeast Asia in 1945. Also another big character. <laughs> yeah. 
So Louis Mountbatten on one side, and then on the other side, you have, you know, General Itagaki, right? Japan's defeat on the global scale had caught the Japanese command in Singapore by surprise. Many were actually unwilling to surrender and had vowed to fight to the death. And Itagaki was one of these guys, right? He had initially balked at the order to surrender, instead ordered the 25th Army, which was a component of the 7th Area Army defending Singapore, to resist when the Allies arrived. So this was really what Operation Zipper was supposed to to also do, right? To basically push forward against the Japanese resistance. There was even a secret plan to massacre all the Allied prisoners of war that were on the island. Oof, that is rough, dude. That is rough to read. I know, these guys weren't willing to go down without a fight. But mm-hmm. what happened was that three days after the Emperor's announcement on 15 August, Itagaki flew from Singapore to Saigon to confer with his leader, Field Marshal Count Terauchi, who was the commander of the Japanese Southern Army and all the forces in Southeast Asia. So, you know, Itagaki's boss. Terauchi prevailed over Itagaki, who was convinced that, you know, they will accept the Emperor's surrender, they won't fight back. And that's why he sent the signal to Mountbatten to basically say, look, we're not going to put up a fight. Which then allowed Mountbatten to basically not have to arm his troops more than was needed. Now, imagine if all of this went a completely different direction, right? Where Itagaki, like, sent that signal, but actually he was still going to push back. That would have been a very different experience for for everyone involved. Yeah. (laughs) So, at this point, newspapers in Singapore were finally allowed to carry the text of the Emperor's speech, uh, confirming what many already knew from listening to all India radio broadcasts from Delhi on forbidden shortwave radio. So they caught wind of what was going on, actually even prior to this? Yeah, exactly. Because the emperor's surrender at a global level what happened much before. It happened in August. Actually, by the time Operation Tide Race is implemented, we're starting to go into September already. So you have all these locals are basically waiting around and asking themselves, what's going on? Is the Japanese still in charge? And, and where do we go from here? The Allies eventually arrived in Malaya on 28 August with a small portion of the fleet sent to recapture Penang as part of Operation Juris. And on 30th August, 1945, a flight of nine RAAF Catalinas landed in Singapore bearing medical supplies and personnel documents in preparation for the Japanese surrender and liberation of the thousands of prisoners of war on the island. When Penang, under Operation Juris, surrendered without resistance, the Allied fleet then sailed for Singapore on 2nd September, passing the Raffles Lighthouse at the southern entrance to the Straits of Malacca. Now, the fleet arrived in Singapore on 4th September, meeting no opposition. However, one uncanny incident, basically the French battleship Richelieu uh, struck a magnetic mine at 7.44 on 9 September. And this wasn't because the Japanese were deliberately trying to do anything. This was just part of their you know, overall defense protocol. French battleship hit it and it basically had to just limp into Singapore. So it arrived a bit later hey. than everyone else on 11 September instead. <laughs> so this is basically the setup. At this point, we know that the Japanese are, are going to concede. The British have come in with full assurance that they're going to be able to take over. And this sets up for the big surrender, which we'll talk about right after the break. Oh man, we're just getting to the juicy part. (laughs) We took a break at the juicy part. You gotta wait and we'll come back. (laughs) We're glad you're listening to this episode and are part of the SG Explainers community. You're special because you're part of a group of people who are joining us to understand the Singaporean identity through a wide variety of topics. Ali and I do this completely out of passion, but we do incur costs to use software, equipment, and not to mention the time spent. We're hoping that you may consider supporting the SG Explained effort in one of two ways. 
if you click on the podcast description of the podcast you're listening to, you'll see a link that says support this podcast with a link to anchor.fm slash sg dash explain slash support. A contribution as small as 99 cents when added up by all our community members can go a long way for us. The second way is that if you want more bonus content for your buck, we've launched an email newsletter. That's right, all the content that doesn't make it to the podcast, including our own perspectives, videos and pictures, as well as links to more resources can be found in these email digests that provide compact information for your on-the-go reading. For five US dollars a month, basically the cost of a bubble tea, through Substack you can get a digest a week with great content. The internet has allowed you, the consumer, to directly express your support to creators like us without needing to depend on brand sponsors too much. We hope you can give whatever you feel comfortable with. Here at SG Explained, Elliot and I are committed to getting great guests, conducting thorough research, and bringing you quality explainers on all things Singaporean. Thank you for being part of our community. Pretty soon. All right, and we are back from break. We're going to talk a little bit more about the surrender. And uh, even after which, there's actually a, a whole ceremony around this surrender, which I think is is pretty awesome. Picking up where we left off, uh, General Itagaki, accompanied by Vice Admiral Shigeru Fukudome and his aides, were brought aboard HMS Sussex in Capel Harbour to discuss the surrender. Uh, security was very tight for obvious reasons. Uh, you can imagine that tensions are a little bit high in this case we have two strong characters who are gonna lead up into each other this is very movie-esque by the way we need a tight race movie hashtag fund me okay a british royal marine was posted at the doorway a uh, standing guard and they were received by lieutenant general uh, sir philip christison and major general robert manser a tense encounter began when the japanese officer reported remarked you are two hours late only to be met with the reply we don't keep tokyo time here yo that to me is the most antagonistic. like this is when you talk to a client antagonistically but you can't say like what's really on your mind so you mask it behind this passive aggressiveness like no Ooh, I can feel it. I can feel it in the air. <laughs> you can cut it. You can cut the tension. Absolutely, absolutely. Lieutenant General Sir Philip Christensen did not give General Itagaki a chance to begin as the minutes revealed. So this this is actual like historical documentation of the conversation. Christensen says, Do you abide by the impure decision to cease hostilities? And are you prepared to carry out the orders of Supreme Allied Commander Southeast Asia? Itagaki says, yes, I am quite prepared. By 1800 hours, the Japanese had surrendered their forces on the island and an estimated 77,000 Japanese troops from Singapore were captured, plus another 26,000 from Malaya. It's very like straight to the point, like they didn't waste any time in order to make the surrender manifest. I don't know, man, like to me, this is, is a lot of tension built up to the surface only for it to just be quelled in like a single meeting. It was decisive. And what you'll see is that this surrender, the surrender that happened on the HMS Sussex was basically meant to to effect the surrender and they saved the pompous ceremony for Lord Louis Mountbatten to come down and really sign the documents later on. But this was meant to be decisive, come in and stop the Japanese occupation of Singapore. And you'll also see that they pegged Itagaki to 
uh, Lieutenant General Christensen rather than to send Mountbatten straight down. I think there is a some asymmetrical power play going on here. Exactly. When you just send someone like, "Hey, you sign this document, and then like we're done." Uh, later, later on, all the, all the uh, formalities will be will be held. But this is you signing the declaration. Intense. And for a person like General Itagaki, as we talked about earlier on, I mean, I can only imagine the kind of... It was humiliating. Like, yeah. yeah, it's humiliating for, for someone like him who took a lot of pride in his Japanese identity and the fact that he is someone of a high profile. I think this kind of culminates a little bit more uh, as we talk about the surrender ceremony. Let's, let's just an, as an overview, um, the formal surrender was finalized on 12 September at uh, Singapore's City Hall and Lord Louis Mountbatten, the Supreme Allied Commander of Southeast Asia Command, uh, came to Singapore to receive the formal surrender of Japanese forces in Southeast Asia from General Itagaki on behalf of Field Marshal uh, Hisaichi Tarauchi, uh, commander of the Japanese Southern Army Group, who had suffered a stroke earlier in the year. So this is the the big public display of it. Not that Itagaki has has much choice at this point in time because he has already agreed to surrender, but in the public eye, or at least at the global stage, this becomes a little bit more relevant. So let's just go into details to find out a little bit more. On 12 September 1945, Lord Louis Mountbatten, accompanied by Deputy Supreme Commander Raymond Wheeler, was driven to the ceremony by a released prisoner of war. As the car drove by the streets, sailors and marines from the East Indies fleet who had lined the streets greeted them. At the municipal building, Mountbatten was received by his commanders-in-chief and high-ranking allied officers based in Singapore. Also gathered in front of the municipal building were four guards of honour from the Royal Navy, Royal Air Force, the Indian Army and Australian paratroopers. Mountbatten led an inspection of the officers before proceeding to the chamber where the ceremony was to be held. During the inspection, a fleet man played Rule Britannia, accompanied by the firing of a 17-gun salute by the Royal Artillery. Okay, so why am I why am I sharing this in the first place? It goes to show the grandiousness and the gravity that's placed in this takeover. The win comes easy in a sense, right? Like you are flexing at this point in time. How many times do we actually have a whole parade lined up? This is what you'll see at National Day for us right now. A whole inspection, there is a gun salutes. This is almost a show of assertion and domination uh, on the British part. The instrument of surrender was signed by General Itagaki, who signed on behalf of Terauchi, as I mentioned before. And Terauchi was not able to attend the surrender ceremony as he had fallen ill due to that stroke. However, he had to personally surrender to Mountbatten on 30th November 1945 in Saigon, which is now known as Ho Chi Minh City. Uh, he also surrendered his two swords, a short sword forged in the 16th century and a long sword forged in the 13th century. Mountbatten later presented the short sword to King George VI. This doesn't look great for the Japanese. It is not just a surrender, but in this case, it is a pretty humiliating surrender, I would say. Uh, not only have they given in, but they had to give up relics of their own as a, as a symbol of subservience, in essence, right? I know that we have very complicated past with the Japanese, but whenever I see these kind of ceremonies, it does make me feel uncomfortable at a, at a strange level. It's like, there's a lot of power play going on and previous victors who become losers are also placed in that same position. That inverse power relation always happens. It's just a personal thing, you know, but I feel weird when someone has to be a overt victim <laughs> to someone else. This is all war, right? And war is all about like, 
posturing and like grandioseness and all this kind of stuff so yeah it does make me feel uncomfortable as well but this is a relic of the time right basically on how people were acting back then true the japanese actually signed a total of 11 copies of the instrument of surrender one each for the british the americans the chinese the french the dutch the australians the indians and the japanese governments and one each for King George VI, the Supreme Commander uh, Mountbatten, and the Southeast Asia Command's records. The ceremony was also witnessed by 400 spectators made up of commanders and officers from the Navy, Army, and Air Force. So this is like no, no small show, right? Uh, a lot of senior officers from the Supreme Headquarters of the Southeast Asia Command were also there. Uh, we had leaders of the Malayan communities, you know, the South of Johor, Sir Ibrahim, and released prisoners of war who were all seated behind the airline representatives. In the chamber, flags of allied forces were hung and at the basis of its pillars stood one officer representing the different fighting forces. We had like, and this is a, is a quite a wide array of, of representation, right? We had the Gurkhas, we had the Sikhs, the Australians, uh, the British Airmen, the Dutch, the Americans, French, so you know from the Bradleshire Richelieu, as you talked about earlier, and the 5th Indian Division as well. This is like everyone came to see the fall of Japan, essentially, right? Everyone who was invested in Singapore at some degree, or even in like the British colonial system, came here just to retake. Uh, the surrender ceremony finally ended with the hoisting of the Union Jack and the playing of the national anthems of all the allied nations. This is the same flag that flew over the government house before the war and which was hidden by Malayan civil servant Mervyn Cecil Frank Shepard in his pillow during his captivity in the Changi prison during the Japanese occupation. So this guy, <laughs> this is interesting. He just, ha- he just hit the flag under his pillow the whole time. What a what a lad. This is such a big deal because actually they couldn't find any Union Jacks. The, the Japanese had gone and like essentially torn or burned all of them. Uh, but the fact that they could find this was like a big deal. And actually, if you haven't already subscribed to SG Explained Substack, please do because what we'll be doing is we'll be posting some of the videos and archives that we were able to find about Operation Tide Race and the Japanese Ooh. surrender. In there, you can see some of these things and, and the speeches that were made as well. It's really fascinating. At the same time, while the Japanese surrender was happening, things were not easy for the Japanese, right? In fact, if you kind of roll it back a bit, so slightly before the surrenders, Itagaki had met his generals and senior staff at his HQ at the former Raffles College in Bukitima and told his men that they would have to obey the surrender in instructions and keep the peace but actually what happened was that that night that he told them more than 300 officers and men killed themselves by falling on their swords in the raffles hotel after a farewell sake party and later an entire japanese platoon killed themselves using grenades so the japanese were really not willing to give up this was something that was humiliating for them as we saw later on and they refused to go through the process about 200 Japanese soldiers decided to instead join the communist guerrillas. And if you think back then, right, back in the in the 1940s, the communist uh, forces or the communist movement was starting to pick up steam. And this was starting to become a threat to the Japanese who were already there. The Japanese decided, heck, we don't want to be subjugated to the British, so we're going to join the communists instead. And they basically offered to join the communists to continue to fight against the British. But the communists actually, this is interesting, said no. <laughs> They re- the Japanese had to return to their units because they found out that the 
MPAJA, which was basically the the group that was doing some of this communist guerrilla fighting, which was also funded by the Malayan Communist Party, did not plan to fight the returning British. <laughs> instead, oh. yeah, instead, some returned back to the unit. Some stayed hidden in the jungles with the communists. They kind of insisted uh, that they will wait out the British rule. And when the Malayan Communist Party ended their struggle in 1989, actually, what was hap- what happened was that they found two former Japanese soldiers. In the jungle with the communists, so it goes to show that they really, you know, refused to basically stick around with the British. It seems like humiliation was all around, right? Whether it was before the surrender, where they decided to preemptively kill themselves, or later on when they basically surrendered to the British. This is really a war of egos. The more we like read the story, right? Mm-hmm. We're taking Singapore as an island as well, pride, but also losing for the Japanese was a very big strike to their dedication to the to the emperor's efforts, right? It's hard, you know, when whenever we have war episodes on the surface it's always exciting and full of like yo that strategy but when we think about what's at stake for for these people man it's hard to digest all of it it's like wow they're willing to die for a cause so strongly uh, and this is war with all like people's lives are literally at stake I, I guess with all that said maybe we can proceed to talk a bit about the aftermath of Operation Tide Race and all the operations, Male Fizz, Zipper, a lot of cool names that come out of this, but man, uh, what, a, what a ride it's been. So in the aftermath, uh, a British military administration was actually formed uh, to govern the island until March 1946. Itagaki actually only departed from Japan shortly afterwards to face trial and unfortunately execution as a war criminal. Uh, on the World Theater, Japan had already surrendered to the Allies on 15th August 1945 and so there was a state of anomaly in Singapore as the British actually had not arrived to take control until September. So thousands of Singaporeans actually lined the streets to cheer the British military administration. Uh, For the people of both Singapore and Malaya, the practical impact of the HMS Sussex surrender was immediate. It put a stop to the communal violence that had broken out on the island and parts of the peninsula. Uh, And the demoralization that comes with being a vanquished force meant the Japanese were hardly in a position to assert control whenever violence did break out. Uh, News of the British return had the effect of stopping a lot of ethnic clashes as well. The people believe that the British would now be the abjurators of the numerous disputes and troubles plaguing the people. However, after some time had passed, it was obvious that the failure of the British to defend Singapore had already destroyed their credibility as infallible rulers in the eyes of the locals in Singapore. And, you know, this is where the rest of our post-World War II, post-Japanese occupation history comes into play, where we start to get more disillusioned with British rule, we fight for independence. Today is 31st, we're recording this on 31st, first of july we're actually like a week or so away from our own national day it's a very good time for us to be talking about this this uh subject Rovic. the road to independence always seems very clear on paper but when we go into the details such as today it's never that clear cut a lot of people lose a lot of things in the process. I would say my big takeaway from this whole series of episodes is, well, first of all, we have a lot to be grateful for that we finally were able to get independence and we didn't have to be subjugated to the egos of, you know, the Japanese or the British, who frankly, you know, Singapore was just a pawn or, you know, just a base, you know, for them to, to have pride over, but actually they had little to no kind of stake in it, right, beyond some of the economic gains. And the fact that we're independent, the people who are in charge 
part of it have a stake in it and and that's super important i think the other part of it is of course just appreciating how swift and decisive that surrender was we didn't have to like fight they didn't have to be more bombings can you imagine like some of our you know our heritage buildings or some of our roads being Make one bomb, bomb wipe us out bro we're so small one bomb is all it takes <laughs> and and these people that were there were our grandparents our great great grandparents and so it's important that we appreciate you know how Operation Tyrus was such a decisive fact in Singapore's history. I think that's a really good takeaway point. For me, when I think about what you know, stories like this entail, it really is just thinking about like why we sometimes take independence for granted. But hearing the stories of how people are subjected to the wills and whims of like these so-called higher powers back in the day, there is a lot of uncertainty involved, right? Like powers, power shifts uh, at such a uh, dynamic rate that sometimes you just don't know like what your life is going to be in a year's time. And now yeah. we, you know, you and I, we've never lived through that. We're like we can't understand that level of comfort, uh, like our predecessors. Yeah, maybe we should do more World War II episodes. I think it would be interesting to kind of do some more stories and learn about some of the, the famous people from Singapore, right? The locals who basically stood up and, and defended us. I know we learned some of that in social studies, but this show, we can do a much better deep dive. They always tell us about Limbo Singh and uh, <laughs> Fort, yeah. If you want to hear those episodes, let us know in you know by Instagram or by Facebook. I think we would love to know your feedback and to get a better sense of, you know, whether you've liked uh, episodes like this. In the meantime, we still have a lot more episodes up ahead for us in season four. Uh, super excited about it and 